This video is for educational and infotainment purposes only. It is not intended to encourage or glorify the use of illegal drugs, violence, or criminal activity in any way. So it's the early 1960s, and Frank Pee Wee Matthews has risen up in the world of organized crime as a successful numbers writer, basically a bookie. When it becomes clear to him that the real money was in drugs, specifically heroin, the problem was the New York mob almost exclusively controlled the importation of heroin at that time through its French connection. So realizing that he needs to partner with the mob, Matthews sets up a meeting with two of the five families that controlled organized crime in New York. And they shot him down. We're not going to partner with you. So you know, that's it, right? If the mob says no, you ain't getting in the game, right? Well, unless you are Frank Black Caesar Matthews. So how did he do it? How did he basically break the mob's control of the heroin in the United States and become one of the top 10 biggest drug traffickers in US history? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to look at the life and times of Frank Matthews. We're going to look at his childhood. We're going to look at his life as a bookie in Philadelphia and then in New York, where his barber shop was a front for illegal gambling through the neighborhood numbers pool. We're going to talk about what a numbers pool even is and how the relationships that he developed set him up to transition into the drug world. We're going to look at how an unlikely partnership was spawned with the Cuban mafia after he was shot down by the New York mob and how that relationship and its own French connection would crown him Black Caesar. Finally, we're going to look at how a nosy cop in Brooklyn who happened to live in Matthew's building figured out what was going on and fueled the federal investigation that would end the reign of Frank Matthews in the United States and it would lead to his hasty departure from the country to whereabouts that are still unknown. If you enjoy the episode, hit that like button. If you got something to say, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button. And you guys know it that I love it when you share me on social media. Recall that all of our episodes are available on the major podcast outlets. We have Lawyer Up merch. If you'd like to support the channel, the link to order is in the description below. And last but not least, we have membership opportunities. Not only will you have access to early uploads before they are released to everybody else, but if you're a member, I will personally respond to the comments that you leave to videos. But that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. So Frank Larry Matthews was born on February 13, 1944, in Durham, North Carolina. With no dad in the picture and his mother passing when he was four years old, he was raised by his aunt, Marzella Steele, the wife of a Durham police lieutenant. He was nicknamed Pee-wee, and he attended school for a spell, but then dropped out to lead a teenage gang who was stealing chickens from local farms. No joke. 
On one such chicken-snatching occasion, he found himself nose-to-nose with an angry farmer. One thing led to another, and Matthews ended up smacking him over the head with a brick. He was arrested and served a year in juvie for assault at the State Reformatory for Boys in Raleigh, North Carolina. Upon his release, he moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he worked as a numbers writer, or what we would now call like an illegal bookie. So for those of you not familiar with what a numbers writer is, let me explain. So the numbers pool or the numbers racket was an illegal lottery played mostly in poor or working class neighborhoods in the United States, where a better attempts to pick three digits that are randomly selected later. Think of your state's pick three lottery drawings, except this was way before state lotteries. These pools actually date back to at least 1860, and unlike the state lottery system, you could bet as little as a penny, and you could play on loan shark credit if your numbers writer would allow it. This was, of course, illegal gambling, but it was also considered a criminal racket by the proprietors because while the odds of winning were 999 to 1, the payout was only 600 to 1. So absent a rogue win by a large better, the house would make money every single day with these numbers pools. So the game was played a little different depending upon which city or even which neighborhood you lived in. But the winning three digits were always tied to some external source. For many in the Northeast United States, the winning number was determined by the last three digits of the handle from the nearest major horse track. And for those unfamiliar with betting terms, a handle is the total amount of money bet on something. It can be either a race or a particular horse or a total bet for the entire day at the track. In the Northeast, the winning number would be the last three digits of the total handle or the total money bet at the local racetrack for the entire day. That was a number that would be published in the following day's newspaper so that everybody could see it. Now, on the surface, the game appeared to be on the up and up, but it was, of course, fraught with corruption and often manipulated by local crime families who ran the game. Ultimately, you know, states would figure out they could do the same thing and they could tax it, so they started legal state-sanctioned lottery drawings. But prior to that, that is what Frank Matthews did. He sold and wrote numbers for the game in Philadelphia. And in doing so, he made his first connections to organized crime, including contacts that would become his future Philadelphia drug connections in Major Coxon and members of the Philly Black Mafia. And just as things were getting going in Philly, Frank gets arrested. And to avoid jail time, he cuts a deal with the prosecutor that required him to leave town. So Frank moves to New York City opens up a barbershop, and gets right back into the numbers game. Over time, his shop became one of the best places in town at collecting numbers. And as Matthew's popularity grew in the numbers world, he was promoted from a writer to a collector and an enforcer, making sure people who played the numbers game on credit actually paid up. And as nice as that promotion was, 
as with most criminal organizations, it became clear that the real money was in drugs. And it was the 60s in the United States. The civil rights movement was going on, the Vietnam War, and hippies. They were normalizing the use of recreational drugs. And in the Northeast, at least, there was a large demand for heroin. In fact, during the 60s, heroin use increased tenfold in New York. And when you combined that demand for heroin with high unemployment, especially among African Americans, you saw black males taking to the street in droves to sell heroin simply to make ends meet. So this was the world that Frank Matthews was coming into as he transitioned into the heroin drug trade in the 60s. At that time, the main supply of wholesale heroin was controlled by the Italian-American mafia, or just the mob, there in New York through their famed French Connection. Now, everybody has heard about the French Connection, but not everybody really understands what it entails. So let's talk a little bit about that. The French island of Corsica, off the southern coast of France, has had a significant criminal element for over a hundred years. Originally made famous by Paul Carbone and Francois Sparito, the Corsican Mafia really rose to prominence and power during World War II by stealing capital, assets, weapons, and vehicles from the Germans during their occupation of France. Now, following World War II, Marseille, a major trading port in southern France, had a pro-Soviet mayor and was controlled by the Soviet labor unions, longshoremen, and dock workers. The French government, as well as the United States government, considered this communist influence to be a threat to democracy in what was the very beginnings of the Cold War. So France, not wanting to start a civil war, and the United States, not wanting to formally invade an ally's turf, needed someone to take action to disrupt the Union gatherings, elections, and generally cause problems for this pro-Soviet regime in Marseille. Alas, a partnership was born between the United States CIA and the Corsican Mafia. Originally, the deal in the 50s was that the Mafia members would be protected from prosecution for their actions in Marseille. But in the 60s, they upped their price and they forged a deal where they would be allowed to ship heroin to the United States for distribution and the United States CIA would protect shipments at least until they got to the United States shores. This arrangement is what is referred to in history as the French Connection. You have probably heard of the Gene Hackman film, The French Connection. It's considered one of the best films ever made. Now, it's fiction. However, its characters are based upon real-life New York City narcotics detectives and Corsican mob members. Anyway, the raw opium came primarily from Turkey, where it was refined into heroin in Corsican labs. And while the transportation of heroin from Corsica to the United States had been going on prior to this time, with the official sanction of the CIA, it ramped up significantly in the 60s and comprised the vast majority of heroin coming into the U.S. with its main distribution connection being the mob in New York. So as Matthew's popularity grew in the heroin world, he realized he needed to partner with the mafia who controlled the bulk of the supply. 
So he set up a meeting with both the Gambino and the Bonanno mob families who were part of the five families that controlled organized crime in New York City. However, both organizations shot Matthews down. No deal. You're going to buy from us just like everybody else. Undeterred, from there he turned to the Cuban mafia and used a Puerto Rican contact from his time in the numbers game to gain an audience with El Padrino, Cuban mafia godfather Rolando Gonzalez Nunez. And the timing could not have been any better, as Gonzalez had just been indicted and was planning to flee the United States to Venezuela. So Gonzalez needed a major contact in New York City, and Frank Matthews was that answer. This relationship quickly expanded into a lucrative drug trafficking network as Gonzalez began sending Matthews large loads of cocaine and heroin from South America. And as luck would have it, Gonzalez already had a partnership with the Corsican Mafia, so he had his own independent heroin supply chain. So we have a black man who met a Cuban through a Puerto Rican to source heroin from the south of France. It is a bit of a convoluted path, but at the end of the day, Frank Matthews was not reliant upon the American mob for heroin anymore. And within a year, Matthews was one of the major players in the U.S. drug business. According to the DEA, quote, Matthews would control the cutting, packaging, and sale of heroin in every major East Coast city. And he was doing it completely under the radar because the major focus of law enforcement at that time was another black heroin dealer named Frank Lucas. Now, Lucas was moving heroin that he sourced from the Golden Triangle region of Southeast Asia, and he was bringing it in in caskets. And he was well known for supplying New York City with its heroin. Hell, they made a movie about him wherein he was played by Denzel Washington, American gangster. And hey, Lucas was impressive in New York, and he got all the press, which was fine with Frank Matthews because he was secretly supplying heroin to the entire eastern seaboard. By 1970, the Matthews organization was handling multi-million dollar loads of heroin that the IRS estimated netted him tens of millions of dollars and the cops basically had no idea. In fact, the first time that Matthews was noticed by law enforcement was entirely by accident. It was 1970, and Matthews was living at 130 Clarkson Avenue in Brooklyn. There just so happened to be a New York City police officer by the name of Joe Kowalski also living in the building. Now, Kowalski noticed that on the weekends, there were no parking spots available around the apartment complex. Not being an issue during the week, this sparked his interest. So the first thing that he noticed was that a lot of the extra cars that were there on the weekends were very nice and they had out-of-state tags. So he started watching and noticed that almost all of the people exiting these vehicles were entering the same apartment. So Kowalski starts running some of the tags and discovers that these guys were linked to big-time drug dealers who were either being charged or investigated from all over the East Coast and the Midwest. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but over the course of 18 months, Kowalski compiled the information and presented it to a federal team of investigators in 1971. 
And from there, the formal investigation into Frank Matthews began. So the first thing the feds did was to put wiretaps on his phones, and they couldn't believe what they were hearing. Frank Matthews was brokering 100,000 kilo transactions of heroin sourced through Venezuela and his French connection. During the course of the investigation, the federal team was able to document Matthews' activities in 21 different states. At the height of his power, he was also known to be the main source of supply for the black mafia in Philadelphia. Authorities would later discover that Matthews operated two massive drug mills in Brooklyn, one located at 925 Prospect Place, nicknamed the Ponderosa, and another at 101 East 56th Avenue, nicknamed the OK Corral. Both locations were heavily fortified and secured with walls of reinforced steel and concrete, and they were protected by guards with machine guns. And Matthews was getting rich, super rich. He purchased a house in the Mafia Enclave in Tot Hill, Staten Island, right across the street from crime boss Paul Castellano. But Matthews was no Marty Bird, so his money laundering skills were not polished. Instead, he would take multiple trips to Las Vegas with suitcases full of cash to have the drug money laundered at the casinos for a fee. And when in Vegas, neither Frank Matthews nor his buddy Frank Lucas kept a low profile. They both liked fancy clothes, nightlife, gambling, and cocaine. They were even known to hang out with Muhammad Ali on occasion. So life was good, but the times they were a-changing. So starting in the early 70s, the heroin supply through the French connection was actually starting to dry up after the United States government convinced the Turkish government to ban opium production, effectively squeezing off the Corsican Mafia's main source of supply. So while demand was high, supply was becoming a problem. And Matthews' major competition for product was, of course, still the New York mob. So in 1971, Matthews invited major African-American and Hispanic drug traffickers throughout the country to attend a meeting in Atlanta. The DEA investigation was in full swing at this point, and so they were well aware of this meeting and they monitored who attended. The topic of the meeting was how to import heroin without being reliant on the mob. Those present decided to try to build stronger, independent relationships with Southeast Asia, the Corsicans, and then possibly the Cubans. In addition, they agreed to diversify their products to include a lot more cocaine, which was becoming available in massive quantities through the Colombian cartels. This gathering of major drug traffickers throughout the United States was significant because it represented the changing nature of the drug business. Whereas previously, the mafia controlled the importing and wholesaling of narcotics, therefore controlling who could and who could not play the game, now others, particularly people of color, were establishing their own pipelines. Where before, African Americans were street-level vendors or the users of the drugs in their cities, now black dealers were establishing their own connections, taking control of the business of narcotics distribution in their own neighborhood. Now, many paint this as a race thing, and it was to a degree, but Matthews also clashed with the black mafia. Most historically, on Easter Sunday, 1972, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, 
where the Black Mafia killed Tyrone, Mr. Millionaire Palmer, Matthew's main dealer in Philadelphia. He was killed at Club Harlem, packed with 600 people. Several innocent bystanders were shot during the shootout, which killed five people and injured 26. Amazingly, no one was prosecuted for the crime because none of the potential witnesses came forward. Then in 1972, Matthews held another drug dealer summit in Las Vegas. It was held at the Sands Hotel during the Muhammad Ali and Jerry Quarry boxing match. But this would be the last of these such meetings as law enforcement would soon start to move in on Black Caesar. First, in 1972, he was charged in Florida for the attempted distribution of 40 pounds of cocaine. In 1973, the DEA arrested Matthews in Las Vegas on charges of tax evasion and conspiracy to distribute heroin and cocaine. A federal magistrate originally set bail at $5 million, the highest bail amount that had ever been set in the United States at that time. Now, the bail was subsequently reduced to $2.5 million when Matthews agreed not to fight extradition and to be returned to New York. And then when he was in New York, bail was further reduced to around $300,000, which he posted. Upon release, Matthews was instructed to return to court on July 2nd of 1973 to answer to the six charges, including tax evasion and conspiracy to distribute heroin and cocaine. Ultimately, he was facing 50 years in prison if convicted. So on July 2nd of 1973, Matthew's case was called in a Brooklyn courthouse, but he did not appear. Investigations would later reveal that Matthews had taken $20 million in cash and fled the country with his girlfriend. He left behind his common-law wife, their three sons, and their Staten Island mansion, and he was never publicly seen again. The FBI placed a $20,000 bounty on Matthews, which at that time tied for the highest ever set by a federal agency and was the same amount that they had set for the capture of bank robber John Dillinger. And Frank Matthews continues to still be wanted by the FBI today. So is that the end of the story? Well, that's the end of the public version of the story because that's all we know. Which begs the question, where the hell did he go? And where is Frank Matthews today? If he is still alive, he would be 78. Most speculate that he definitely did leave the United States in 1972, but where did he go? Some posit that he went to Corsica. However, he wasn't the main contact with the gang. France has an extradition agreement with the United States, and a black man with $20 million cash cannot hide out on an island for very long. Some speculate that he went to Cuba, a nation that was antagonistic to the United States government and friendly to his partner in crime, Cuban godfather Rolando Gonzalez Nunez. But the most likely answer is that he went to Venezuela itself following a similar path of Gonzalez Nunez. At the time, Gonzalez had success avoiding the federal authorities, and Venezuela has never played nice with the U.S. government, so extradition was unlikely. So is he still there today? Well, it's unlikely. 
Gonzalez was arrested in Caracas, Venezuela in the early 80s, caught with 18 pounds of cocaine. He served five years in prison, retired from a life of crime, and lived with his wife Esmeralda on a small farm near Caracas until his death in 1992. So Matthews is probably not still there. So where is Frank Matthews? Who knows? He's smarter than the feds, and he always has been. So that's the episode. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, I would recommend the book Black Caesar, The Rise and Disappearance of Frank Matthews Kingpin. If you enjoyed the episode, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a comment, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed, hit that subscribe button for me. And last but not least, you guys know it, I love it when you share my videos on social media. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.